Unrest has continued for a second consecutive night in the US state of Minnesota following the police shooting of an unarmed 20-year-old black man on Sunday. France looks set to ban domestic flights that are shorter than two hours long and where a rail journey is possible in their place and will assess how the role of the foreign correspondent is changing with NBC News's chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today on the latest here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 13th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And with us to discuss some of the day's big news stories are Monocle's Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker. He's in Milan for us. And Monocle 24's Daniel Bache, who's in London. Daniel, Ed, great to have you with us on a Tuesday once again. How's the week shaping up for you so far, Ed? Let's start with you in Italy. Well, I I almost feel, you know, I'm going to really get there ahead of Daniel and talk about the weather because, uh, you know, I just, you know, I thought summer was here or at least spring. It was beautiful weather and it's turned decidedly grey and and, and chilly. So obviously, you know, not affecting the, uh, the, the turnover of work that's happening for both Monocle 24 and the print magazine as we uh, head into our entrepreneurs, our business-themed issue that's coming up next, hot on the hills of that, is our June issue. So plenty to keep uh, the brain warm and ticking over despite the cool weather, Tom. And Daniel, how about you? Is there plenty to keep the, the brain ticking over for you there at Monocle 24 in Midori House in London? Indeed, yeah. Ed mentioned the uh, print issue of The Entrepreneurs, which comes out next month, which is, of course, the... Uh, wonderful spin-off of the radio show that I do host. And I have to say, Tom, this week I've been very much wearing my print hat. Not something I do very often, but uh, lending a hand there, which is uh, very exciting for me. Uh, it's uh, a different muscle to exercise uh, on your point uh, about the brain spinning a little bit. So that's been fun and, and very much keeping me busy this week. And talking of exercising muscles, Daniel, England has entered the latest stage of its lockdown easing this week. And it seems like lots of muscles were being exercised in lots of different places across the country. Perhaps we'll have time to discuss some of that before the end of the programme today. But Daniel and Ed, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, let's begin today with a story that's been developing in the United States, where the Centre for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, announced earlier today that their poor Causing the use of the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine as they investigate a possible link with rare blood clots. Um, Ed, what's the latest information that we have about this move that was made or announced, I should say, a little earlier today? Yeah, I mean, we now know that Johnson & Johnson is going to delay, uh, you know, they were urged by uh, authorities in the US to, to take this pause, as you mentioned, uh, due to uh, some blood clots uh, that are being investigated and 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 now Johnson and Johnson's made this decision to delay uh, the rollout of of the vaccine here in Europe and obviously that's that's a big deal especially as well certainly looking at it from my point of view from Italy we know that the country's been extremely behind not so long ago uh just a couple of weekends ago there was a big article in La Repubblica about the over 70s that haven't had vaccinations, it's been a real fiasco and, and very uneven according to regions as well. And the government of Mario Draghi, and I'm speaking from an Italy perspective, but it could be applied to lots of different countries, um, 
we're really hoping that Johnson & Johnson would be one of the vaccines that would sort of ride uh, to the aid of European countries that really need to up the number of uh, jabs they have and also, uh, you know, just generally up the speed if they're to catch up with some other countries that have pulled far ahead, the UK and Israel included. And so it will be, uh, you know, interesting to see what happens from this. Um, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's easy to, to see a parallel between the plight of the Johnson Johnson vaccine and what's been happening with AstraZeneca, the fact that, you know, AstraZeneca seems to have a low, very extremely low instance of, of, of potential blood clotting. And I guess they're investigating whether uh, the same is true uh, of this uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But of course, we've had plenty of discussions on this radio about whether, uh, you know, the good outweighs the possible side effects. The fact, the fact that, you know, these seem to be very small numbers and you're more likely to actually die of a blood clot uh, from getting coronavirus than than one relating to the vaccine, it, it seems. So to sum up, uh, we'll have to watch this space carefully, but a potential blow, uh, obviously, to the US, but also to countries uh, all over the world, the global south, Europe, etc., that, had, you know, that were banking on this Johnson & Johnson vaccine to really uh, up the number of people in their populations receiving a jab. Let's hope it's only a temporary pause and that things will be able to continue as normal very soon. Well, as Ed said, we will be monitoring developments in the US around the Johnson Johnson coronavirus vaccine in the days to come here on Monocle 24. But let's stay in the United States now for our next story here on the late edition, where in the US state of Minnesota, unrest has continued for a second consecutive night following the shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright on Sunday by a police officer on patrol in the city of Brooklyn Centre, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. The police yesterday stated that the shooting had been an accident, that the officer involved had intended to reach for her taser, but had fired her gun instead. Daniel, the mayor of Brooklyn Centre last night called for those demonstrating on the streets of the city to go home. How else has the city and its police force responded so far to the unrest that is continuing there? Well, quite swiftly, Tomas, um, to that point, there's been uh, a few dozen arrests already. And uh, the mayor, the first black mayor for Brooklyn Center, Mike Elliott, who we've seen in the media wearing that, uh, which seems to be a trademark this week, his blue baseball cap, has uh, actually taken over control uh, of the police after the city manager uh, was uh, was fired over this. Um, We've obviously heard uh, calls from as far away as the White House and as high up as the White House uh, that there needs to be calm and and, and the usual things like uh, uh, we, we don't want to see looting and, and people breaking the curfews. But I think we're really at uh, a boiling point here, Tomas, and, and people have been quite angry. So the the reaction hasn't been uh, hasn't been very violent or 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 widespread, but, you know, there is that potential based on uh, whatever the response here is uh, from Minnesota, the police uh, and their initial uh, response and explanation for the shooting was that the officer meant to use her taser, probably uh, an explanation that doesn't really sit well with people considering that was an officer that has been on the force for 26 years. That seems... Uh, 
seems a, a stretch for a lot of people. I mean, the, the Brooklyn Center Mayor Mike Elliott has called this uh, shooting uh, unfathomable. And it, it really is, in a sense, especially at the time we're at with the Derek Chauvin murder trial uh, being held in uh, the center uh, of, of the bigger city. And that, you know, that this has happened again, where uh, a seemingly routine traffic stop has ended in the death of a young black man is 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 just not acceptable to a lot of people. So I think uh, we could see a lot more demonstrations and and I think calls for people to not break the curfew or have their voices heard, I don't think are going to go very far, Tomas. And Ed, all of this is taking place in the greater Minneapolis area where the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer who's been charged with killing George Floyd last year, is underway. While we've been talking, a statement has come through from the office of former President Barack Obama and uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama. And I'll just read you the first part of it because it does bring the two moments together, I think. It begins by stating, Our hearts are heavy over yet another shooting of a black man, Dante Wright, at the hands of police. The fact that this could happen even as the city of Minneapolis is going through the trial of Derek Chauvin and reliving the heart-wrenching murder of George Floyd indicates not just how important it is to conduct a full and transparent investigation but also just how badly we need to reimagine policing and public safety in this country. Uh, that there is a part of the statement from Barack and Michelle Obama that was released a short while ago. Um, Ed, the idea of sort of overhauling public safety in the US, uh, in, in the crucible of what has happened to Dante Wright, but also in the crucible of the trial of Derek Chauvin, do you think that those conversations are moving any further forward in terms of meaningful change to the way certain elements of police forces react to those who believe that they've been unfairly targeted historically by them i mean it, it's it's such a difficult question and we saw look we saw it in in, in the run-up to this presidential election we we saw big calls for uh, a change to the way police forces are run some changes have been made but very little the fact that you know the there are many police forces around the country that have military grade weapons and that's combined with some really really poor training some of which you know, I experienced firsthand in New York, but obviously nothing like the terror that some of these people face day in, day out uh, at the hands of police. And yeah, the fact that this is uh, another uh, highly visual case uh, video again, catching this time the the, the police uh, camera uh, uh, capturing those moments won't do anything to sort of heal the these wounds and the fact that just 10 miles away that you know there's a trial going on as you mentioned for the police officer uh, uh accused of the homicide of 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 George Floyd um it will be interesting to see whether you know lots of people have been calling for calm to happen a lot of people are extremely angry we'll have to see if protests continue and uh you know the 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 defense is arguing that you know in in the George Floyd trial, uh, you know, uh, arguing that uh, the the actual jury should be sequestered, which is basically when they're isolated to to protect them uh, from outside influence. That's something that the judge uh, has said uh, he won't do. Just given the fact that everything that's happening, 
the defence is trying to say that they could be unduly influenced. Um, it is kind of insane, this trial, in the sense that, you know, it's going out uh, on TV cameras, but the court itself is kind of uh, Fort Knox. It's it's surrounded by fencing. Uh, the jury members get a police escort anyway as a group uh, to court every day, and they they have to, they go in a private entrance. Uh, their their phone use is limited to to recess every day. But obviously, I think the eyes and ears of not just the U.S. but the world are really on uh, the outcome of, of of this trial because. You know, you talk about uh, what might happen and, uh, and and an idea of moving forward. And I think uh, a big part of that idea of moving forward and having genuine reform would be uh, for many people seeing a conviction of uh, the police officer in question. I say that because uh, in the six years that I was in the US and, 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 and even before that, we've seen plenty of cases in which police officers have not historically uh, faced jail time or, or been found guilty uh, in these sorts of, of killings. And I don't know if there's anything different this time, but the mood is certainly different. But also the fact that we've seen during this trial, we've seen police officers uh, in the stand uh, giving a testimony as part of the prosecution. So there hasn't been this sort of blue wall of silence Clearly, what happened with that hold on the neck of George Floyd has jolted people and not just members of the public, not just members of the African-American community, but also police officers themselves. And so today is the start of the defense and we expect closing arguments sometime next week. Uh, It will be uh, fascinating to see how this develops over the coming days. And we will be monitoring events in Minneapolis over the coming days here on Monocle 24. Next here on the late edition, France looks set to ban short-haul domestic flights for those routes where a train journey is already available. And on today's edition of The Globalist, the journalist and author Latika Bork had more for us on the potential impact elsewhere in Europe on the move in France. France's new law is going to be very closely watched by other countries. Austria is one that they say is looking at it. They've already introduced a higher tax on airline tickets where plane flights can be taken, but there is an alternate train route. And the Netherlands has also been trying to vote to ban short flights for some years now. So it's very, very, to me, it sounds like a very Europe-friendly policy because if we tried to adopt this in Australia where there's basically zero train routes through the country and, of course, it's a vast continent, I mean, this would be a vote-losing exercise for any politician who tried to put it up and they'd be laughed out of town. But here in Europe, France is bravely going the way that many other countries might follow. The journalist Latika Bork there speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Um, Ed, in your mind, how transformative do you think this, if it is ultimately passed by France's Senate, how transformative do you think it could be? Well, I think it's uh, potentially quite amazing. Uh, Obviously, uh, long-haul flights uh, are are much more polluting, but obviously it's much easier to take a, a quick hop short-haul flight and the sheer number of them uh, mean uh, that they are also obviously highly polluting. Um, It's a strong, bold move. We've seen uh, France sort of upping its green credentials, not just uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, 
the president, but also obviously Anne Hidalgo, uh, who is the very green orientated mayor of the city of Paris. She's been instrumental in in, in trying to change uh, pollution in that city, the flow of traffic, um, uh, planting more trees, greenifying the city. Uh, so a, a really interesting move. The one thing that I would say on this is that uh, as someone who, uh, you know, when I was based in Europe, when I was based in London and looking to travel around Europe back in the day when that was a normality, of course, pre-pandemic, uh, you'd often look at flights uh, versus the train and you'd see that, uh, you know, to get the Eurostar, for example, from London into continental Europe and then travel around Europe by train, uh, it was something I'd much rather do, but the, the, the cost was so much higher. It was maybe three times more expensive to get the train. So I think that it's an excellent idea. This is for journey times under two and a half hours, I believe, that they're looking into this. I think it's a great idea, but I think what it needs to be followed with, and perhaps this will be in the letter of the law, it needs to be followed uh, by some sort of price controls to assure that uh, travelling by train is affordable. Uh, obviously, we've had budget airlines giving away flights virtually for free, uh, so perhaps that's given us a bit of a distorted uh, view of, of how much a ticket should cost. But as long as uh, train uh, travel is is affordable to the majority doing this, then I think it's a good thing. And Daniel, airlines have been particularly hit by the travel restrictions of the, the past year or so. Do we know how, from a business point of view, France's carriers are going to be able to absorb the cost of this move into their businesses? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And it comes uh, at uh, not a great time to Moss, obviously. Um the big carrier, Air France, and and, and its uh, its partner, its the parent KLM, is is a huge important one, and and has had to have the support of the government. Similar thing that we're seeing in in other places, including Lufthansa in Germany, Air Canada now in Canada as well. Uh, so it, it doesn't come at a great time, and it, it will almost force them into a different business model. But you know filling up flights again and having ticket revenue is, is going to be uh, very important, if, even if it's, uh, you know, at, not at bargain bottom prices. But uh, I think it's not going to help and there will need to be some sort of uh, external support. So uh, interesting one to watch, to be certain. Well, finally here on the late edition, we are turning to a story, Daniel, that you wrote about for today's edition of the Monocle Minute about one of Canada's most familiar foreign correspondents who has died at the age of 66 after a long and storied career in foreign news for Canadian audiences. Yeah, absolutely. One that really stood out uh, in the coverage and on social media as well, just seeing a lot of editors, reporters and politicians weigh in on this, uh, as I wrote about Matthew Fisher, uh, not someone I knew personally, but certainly had read uh, many of his columns over the years, posted in several different cities, but mostly working as a stringer, as a freelancer in a host of different places, you know, being posted in Moscow, watching the fall of the Soviet Union, but also traveling to over 170 countries, I think, which is remarkable uh, in uh, a career of, of about 30, 35 years. And uh, quite widely respected, you know, thoughts uh, uh, 
to uh, his family coming in from uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, from Bob Ray, a longtime, uh, obviously, ambassador and politician, uh, now uh, from the Liberal Party, obviously, uh, formerly with the NDP. But uh, interesting to see that cross-spectrum of people sort of weighing in because this is a, a reporter, a man known for for really going everywhere. He is, uh, you know, noted even by the Canadian forces for sort of knowing when there would be some action or a hot spot. So uh, the Canadian Armed Forces sharing their condolences as well. And that's pretty remarkable to see, uh, you know, armed forces, politicians, journalists, editors, and regular people sharing their thoughts on a reporter who also took uh, a very strong interest in covering the Olympics for Canadians. But uh, as I wrote about, sort of a, a window to the world. And the 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 interesting thing for someone uh, like me who's been in, uh, you know, early in a career, perhaps only only 10 years in from from starting as, as an intern, uh, you don't really see these jobs uh, anymore. And, and a lot of people wouldn't really think of that as a possible career, obviously uh, quite a lonely, quite a difficult uh, position, which uh, would uh, now these days be mostly taken up by a freelancer because, you know, there are few and uh, fewer and fewer of, of these uh, sort of career uh, roaming uh, correspondence, but uh, I think the point of that piece was just to talk about the importance of someone that can, uh, you know, travel to so many places that that many other people can't, and and share those stories uh, with uh, a familiar perspective. And Ed, it's interesting, isn't it, that point Daniel made about the idea of the career foreign correspondent perhaps being not as as present or achievable, perhaps kind of in the current landscape of, of journalism in many parts of the world. And, and we hear a lot from foreign correspondents in the pages of Monocle magazine and here on Monocle 24 about how their roles are changing or have changed over the years. Before I come to you with your thoughts on this, we can hear now from Richard Engel. He is NBC News's chief foreign correspondent and we spoke to him recently for the may issue of monocle magazine here he explains why living somewhere as a foreign reporter rather than traveling in and out to cover a story is still in his view so important i was normally the guy who lived in the place and then would travel out so i just moved to london a few years ago but i was normally the based in guy so i wasn't parachuting in from london I lived in Beirut for three years. I lived in Jerusalem for three and a half years. I lived in Cairo for four years. And I just moved to Europe a few years ago for some personal reasons, family reasons. I have a child with disabilities. Medical care was a factor. So I did that experience. And I've never been a fan of the guy who parachutes in. But luckily, I had 17 years of experience being the local person. Now, I still do quite a bit of, of moving in, but you know, if I'm going back to Baghdad, it's like going back home because I did live there for so many years. Richard Engel, NBC News' chief foreign correspondent there, speaking to me recently for the May issue of Monocle magazine, uh, which is out next week. Ed, listening to, to Richard there and to the other sort of threads that Daniel brought up earlier, what, what do you think the sort of role of the foreign correspondent is these days in the media landscape in many parts of the world as it is at the moment? Well, I mean, the, there's a couple of things. I, yes, uh, you, you could argue that it's becoming a much more difficult uh, situation. We know uh, that media outlets around the world, uh, you know, are cutting the number of foreign correspondents they have on staff 
around the world. So obviously that has an adverse effect on the profession. Uh, having been sort of a stringer stroke foreign correspondent in Buenos Aires for about four and a half years, I do know that, you know, if you're an aspiring journalist or you're keen to go and embed yourself in a part of the world, I guess part of uh, the the advantage of the fact that a lot of um, publications no longer have staffers in these parts of the world is the fact that you as a freelancer can cover lots of stories. And of course, being based in a country like that clip was saying, uh, you know, gives you this amazing um, knowledge uh, about that country that parachuting in doesn't give you. Uh, you obviously are able to absorb information, work sources, just get to know the country. And so when you're interviewing someone or covering a story, you're going to be able to give, obviously, a much more nuanced picture uh, from your experience of being in that country. I'll just add one more thing about the sort of nature of being a foreign correspondent. What is certainly true is that it isn't, I think, as glamorous uh, as it used to be. I remember speaking to Seymour Hirsch, who's uh, he's he, he's uh, an American journalist who goes back many decades. Uh, he, he covered the Vietnam War, who's a longtime writer for The New Yorker. We actually got him uh, to write an essay for Monocle a couple of years back. Uh, and he published his own memoir not so long ago. And just uh, just sort of listening or, or reading rather about him describing uh, the life of uh, of a foreign correspondent and uh, and the sort of uh, hotels he used to stay in when he'd go on his travels, the sort of finest hotels in the land makes you think that uh, yeah nowadays there may be slightly more budget constraints so I, i'd say that perhaps you're not in the finest bar in the top hotel shipping sh- champagne uh, after you've uh, covered an unfolding conflict which actually perhaps is a good thing well ed stocker and daniel Bache, thanks very much to the two of you as always for being with us on the program today that is all i'm afraid to say we have time for for today's edition of the late edition today's program was edited by david stevens at midori house in london a big thank you to him as always too the late edition returns at the same time tomorrow but in the meantime do take a listen to the brand new episode of monocle on design which premiered here on monocle 24 a short while ago i'm thomas lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.